0: Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 41. Uh, Genesis 41 today, as we continue our series um, in the book of Genesis. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to uh, be walking through Genesis 41. I've worked to to do this at a level that is uh, hopefully helpful to us. This is a familiar story about Pharaoh dreaming some dreams... And so I want to just give you uh, some things I think that can help you understand it maybe even a little bit better. And at the same time just rejoice in the great God of Israel that we see uh, in these pages. So, we come to Genesis 41, we're in the middle of a three-chapter unit where Moses is showing how Joshua ascends to a position of power in Pharaoh's court. Genesis thirty-nine, of course, he's in Potiphar's house. He's then framed for something he did not do, and he's sent to the king's prison in Genesis forty, and he remains there um, and is forgotten there by the people who can help him. In English, we use the expression one step forward, two steps backward. And uh, we use that as an idiom to describe when we're frustrated by our lack of progress to do something. That phrase could perhaps be helpful. I mean, this, this unit is about Joseph ascending, but he keeps taking steps downward. Instead of one step or uh, one step forward, two steps backwards. More like two steps backwards so far. But in Genesis 41, we come to the place where God exalts him in a powerful moment... Uh, for the glory of God. Things keep getting worse and worse for him, but we arrive at this time where things will get better, where he will go from a prisoner to a ruler or a prime minister over the people of Egypt. And in this chapter, I think the main emphasis that I hope, to, to, I hope for you to see as we read through it, and then I will stress at the end as well, is that the God of Israel controls things even down in Egypt. Far away from his homeland. The story has six parts. And uh, I have a very simple PowerPoint today. I'm going to give you the six parts in this PowerPoint just to keep you with me as we go through here. It starts with the dreams in verses 1 through 7. Look in your Bible at verse 1. Genesis 41 verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing uh, by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ear swallowed up the plump ear, the plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. What a crazy night's sleep for Pharaoh here, right? I love how the report ends. And behold, it was a dream. You ever wake up in the morning like that? Oh, I'm so glad that was a dream. That was the craziest thing I've ever experienced. Favor has two dreams here that involve cows and ears of corn. And yet he knows there's something significant about these dreams. I personally love how he describes the cows in the passage. The good cows are attractive and plump. i just point out a few things about that. First, it seems strange to me to call a cow attractive. Um, You know, I've never been a farmer. Perhaps farmers to farmers, certain types of livestock are attractive. However, the other thing I point out is this is a strange combination. Attractive and plump. If only what was true of bovines was true of human beings. Uh, Some of us would be much farther along. uh, But I digress. Some of us maybe aspire to be attractive and plump. Uh, But uh, Pharaoh describes these cows in that way. Then he identifies the bad cows. He calls them ugly and thin... This could be translated evil, evil cows, and thin-skinned cows. So he sees a horrific sight here. Okay, that's his dream. I'm not going to say too much more about those until we get into uh, a little later in the text. Uh, that leads to a search for Pharaoh. Uh, where Pharaoh searches here for someone who can explain to him the hidden meaning of the dreams. Uh, has your spouse ever, after a night of dreaming, ever turned to you and asked, I had this dream. Could you tell me what you think it means? It's usually something like this. Honey, I had a dream about a pink bunny and uh, a rocking chair and an alligator. Can you tell me what it means? And you look at her or him and you just say, um, I've got nothing on that. I don't think that could possibly mean anything. It's so strange or bizarre. Um, in a moment of transparency here, as a community, followers of Jesus Christ, in the large community of this church in this gathering, I want to ask you a personal question. Do any of you dream weird dreams? If you do, raise your hand. Okay, okay, all right. Maybe in ABS today or in youth group, you can share with your neighbor the dreams that you have. If you dream weird dreams, you can relate to Pharaoh's dream here. Okay, and. In Pharaoh's dream, again, he knows something is significant. So he starts a search, and in verse 8, he starts with his professional dream interpreters. Look at verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Although Pharaoh doesn't understand the dream, he's disturbed by it. He turns to his magicians and none can interpret it. I'm sure they tried. Maybe may have even offered interpretations, but it's obvious they're not right and so this leaves the door open for someone else to interpret the dream. And his search then goes to his cupbearer starting in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So the chief cupbearer finally remembers Joseph after two full years of Joseph kind of rotting away in the roundhouse dungeon prison uh, that he's been in. This is risky in some ways for the cupbearer, but it's providential, it's God's timing. God leads him to do this, and so that leads Pharaoh in his search to call Joseph up out of the prison. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. It's an interesting way to describe the prison, a pit. He's been in a pit before. This dungeon prison was terrible. And We continue to read. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream... And there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So after he's pulled from the pit. He shaves all the hair off his head, at least facial hair, maybe even the hair off his head, because Egyptians are against facial hair during this time. And he puts on a fresh set of clothes. I'm sure this is the first time for him in quite a long time for a fresh set of clothes. Imagine the whirlwind that this must have been for him. It's probably just been a few short hours since he awoke uh, in the dungeon prison on the floor. And he comes out to the light of freedom. And next thing he knows, he's standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt. Once he gets to this important moment, the first thing he does is he corrects Pharaoh. That's risky. Corrects Pharaoh here. And he tells him that he's not the interpreter, but God will give him the answer. This is, by the way, just like the answer he'd given to the, the baker and the cupbearer before, when he said, uh, dreams belong to God. God can do this. Joseph. Knows God is the one who can answer this dream. So we have the dreams and the search. And that leads us to the review, verses 17 through 24, where Pharaoh reviews his dream to Joseph so that he can interpret it. Look at verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they'd eaten them, no one would have known that they'd eaten them, for they were still ugly as at the beginning. Then I woke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing from one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thinned, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. One of the things I noticed in Pharaoh's retelling of this is what he adds to what Moses had already told us. And what Pharaoh adds to it is nothing that contradicts what Moses said in the text of Scripture about the dream. He just magnifies kind of the ugliness and the darkness of these dreams. Uh, He adds the description of the thin and ugly cows and he says that they were worse than anything that he had ever seen in all of Egypt. They were worse than any cows he would ever seen. He then says that they remained ugly and thin even after eating up the other cows. So he's kind of gross, skeletal, like cows uh, eat the other cows and nothing happens in his dream. It's a frightening dream about odd bovine cannibalism here. Finally, he says the seven Thin ears of corn, withered and blighted, swallow up the good corn. I don't know how that's possible, but he describes that to him as well. It seems to me that Pharaoh is greatly disturbed by this dream as he recalls it. And so he emphasizes just how weird and uh, intimidating this dream was for him. Okay. That leads to Joseph's response, which I call the speech. Verses 25-36. through 36. The speech has two parts to it. He starts by interpreting the dream, and then he gives some advice or practical counsel to Pharaoh about what to do about it. So we start with the interpretation. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. For it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will surely bring it about. So here Joseph nails the interpretation. God has made it clear to him what this means. He said that two dreams are actually one in meaning and interpretation. The seven cows and ears of corn represent seven years of abundance followed by seven years of of famine in the land and he adds to that idea that the famine is going to be greater than the abundance the famine will completely overwhelm the abundance so that no one will even remember the abundance okay that's the interpretation but joseph does not provide only the interpretation he goes further and he gives pharaoh counsel or advice I like what Bruce Walkie said here. He said, Joseph takes a risk by offering unsolicited advice to Pharaoh. Okay, so look at verse 33. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint officers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years... Uh, That are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So he gives advice, and his advice is basically threefold, if you're paying attention here. One, Pharaoh should set up a prime minister. Uh, Some people would refer to this as a vizier or a viceroy. He's supposed to set up someone second in charge in the country to handle this matter. Then he says you should also set up local overseers in each one of the cities that this prime minister can deal with to begin collecting materials. And then third, he says that Pharaoh should pronounce a tax on all incoming crops at 20%. Before we complain about our taxes... 20% Twenty percent of all the crops and put them into these strong houses here. I think Joseph's plan here is wise. It's from the Lord. It's wise because our natural human tendency often is not to store up when we have overabundance. It's to just you know burn it all on our resources. Um, but he he offers this counsel here. And God is going to bring this to pass, so Pharaoh must be responsible, put these things into place in order to deliver his people. That's Joseph's speech. It leads to a surprise promotion, a surprise promotion in verses 37 through 45. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Uh Uh-oh, we know where this is going. Joseph said, find someone wise and discerning. Pharaoh says, there's no one as wise and discerning as you are. Verse 40, you shall be over. My house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath which is hard to to understand exactly what that means it might mean something like god knows you and he gave him in marriage asenath the daughter of potipharah that's her father potipharah priest of a city called on so joseph went out over the land of egypt many people go throughout their life waiting for uh, a breakthrough of some nature they're you know, we don't do this. We're Baptist, right? They 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 hope they win big in the lottery, uh, or they're waiting for some promotion at work that will take care of all their financial issues and deals, or they can't wait for that day where they receive the inheritance that is set aside for them. They want to win big. They want to break through. Joseph has a divine breakthrough in this passage. He woke up at the beginning of the day on the floor of a prison. And he goes to sleep as the second highest ruler in the strongest country of the world. And this is something that God does. Because as the scriptures say, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. So as Pharaoh begins his search here, they're kind of talking about a viable candidate to oversee the project. And he suggests that there's no one more qualified in the whole country than Joseph. He knows that God speaks through this man. He suggests that God's spirit or the spirit of the gods, however that's taken, that God's spirit or the spirit of the gods is in this man. I mean, he's seen him speak and explain the dream clearly. It comes from God. Which, by the way, if you're reading this dream scenario and you're you're thinking about the rest of the bible this might remind you of a time when nebuchadnezzar recognizes that in daniel when he interprets a dream he also has the spirit of god in him It's like echoes back and forth i think daniel's kind of retelling the story in his book bringing the joseph story with him as uh we go through here though everything changes for joseph if you're Paying attention to the section, he gets a new job, a new home, a new ring, new clothes, a new necklace, a new ride. Second most valuable in all of Egypt, a new name, and a new wife. He goes from prisoner to prime minister in the scene without compromising his integrity. That's the promotion. And it leads to uh, the way the chapter concludes with the fulfillment of... Of the interpretation that he had given, everything happens exactly how God said it would happen, with seven years of blessing before seven years of famine. Uh, let's look at the seven years of blessing, verse forty-six. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout uh, through all the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. The earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. Verse 49, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Here in this first part about the abundance and the seven good years, everything is prospering. The land and Joseph's family. That's how I understand this narrative. Uh, in the land, um, what we see is that the Egyptians uh, are able to bring in uh, so much grain that it's like the sand of the seashore in its content in all the various cities throughout Egypt. And, and then um, God blesses Joseph with two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means, in Hebrew, means causing to forget. God's grace to deliver Joseph and exalt him to second ruler over Egypt has caused him to stop actively thinking about the hardships that he endured at the hands of the betrayal of his brothers. Perhaps in the prison cell or in the home of Potiphar before when he would go to bed. And think at night, he would think about the way he was betrayed. He would think about the ugly things uh, his brothers had done to him. But through this turn of events, now when he goes to bed, he forgets that. God has given him a new son, Manasseh, meaning causing to forget. And Ephraim, which means speaks of God's blessing. During this time of abundance for all of Egypt, God has blessed Joseph himself. But that leads to the beginning of the famine, and that's how the chapter ends. Look at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, The people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread out over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe uh, in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. This narrative is quite easy to follow in many ways. But here we see in this final section, the famine comes. The word famine is mentioned six times in these last few verses here. The famine begins to come, and Joseph has properly prepared Egypt for the crisis, and now the whole world comes to him for help because the text says the famine was very severe throughout the whole world and of course this these new developments set us up for the next few chapters where he's going to get some visitors from his homeland coming to him asking for food so I think of this chapter and its relevance i would suggest to you that this story emphasizes god's power to intervene So that the Pharaoh listens to a no-name prisoner on this day. Moses originally records this for his reader. His reader is camped on the brink of the promised land. Facing all of the impossibilities of crossing the river Facing the giants of Jericho and of the promised land. What they needed to know is that the God of Israel is the God of the whole world. He is stronger than an Egyptian Pharaoh. He puts Pharaoh in his place here, this text. And he's stronger than any Canaanite warrior. Or giant. As we consider this text today, that's the exact same thing that we need to know. God is still in control. He is still powerful to deliver his people today. Perhaps you've heard the old story of Robert Wilson He was a professor, a distinguished professor of Old Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. One of his students was invited to come back to Miller Chapel on campus at Princeton and preach. Twelve years after the student had graduated. And this elderly professor, this distinguished professor, went to chapel. After the message, uh, Dr. Wilson went forward and shook the preacher's hand. And he said this. He said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry is going to be like. Well, the preacher had never heard that before. Big godders, little godders. What does that mean? So he asked for clarification. And this is what Professor Wilson said. He said, well, some men have a little god. And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scriptures to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little Godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them who fear him. Men and women, as we consider this text, as we face our own possi- uh, impossibilities in our own pets, we must know that the great God of the Bible is our God today. That's what we need in our own dark a days when things seem like, even in culture, you know, it's just like things are spiraling like out of control or whatever. What we need is the great God of the Bible. And that's what we have. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph is our God. And not only do dreams belong to him, so too does the deliverance of his children in every age and every time. So whatever that pit is for you, We have the same great God. I trust that we will have a big view of our God as we consider what he did on this day to deliver Joseph. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this powerful story of Scripture. Lord, familiar in some ways, but may we not lose sight of its purpose I like think Moses knew through the Spirit, of course, in writing this book to his original readers, how much they needed to know that the God of Israel is the God of the whole world. And as we consider it, may we know that our God is not only The great God of Bible times. He is the great God of our time as well. Lord, it's easy to say these things, to hear them preached, and to say we believe them, but then to lose faith. So help us in our own impossibilities, in our own pit, not to lose sight of the fact that you're always in control. And may we believe that. Until the day your Son breaks through at his blessed and glorious appearing for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.